Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and with me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing today, Cecil? Richie, it's been such a long time since we've done one of these, man. This is so great. <laughs> like, I'm listening to you do this intro, and I'm just like, wow, Like, is that what we used to sound like? <laughs> you know what I mean? It is such an amazing feeling to be back here, to be podcasting again, and to be able to share all these stories with everyone. Yeah, you know, and and you know, I know that it's taken us like six weeks to get this thing out, even though we've, we've had this episode in our inbox for almost three years, which is kind of wow. embarrassing to say that. But the great thing about this conversation is that it's kind of evergreen. Right. And I mean, a good story is always a good story. Right? Absolutely. So like you mentioned, you know, you could always listen to it and, you know, you could share it with your, your kids, with your families, with, you know, tons of different folks. And hopefully someone somewhere would be able to get some some good information out of it. Yeah, there's 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 uh, Eugene's a really interesting guy, and um, I I really love this this episode, which is why I chose it to to be the, our kind of first official episode back. Awesome, man. So so what are we what are we doing first? What are we doing now? All right, well uh, let's talk about what we've been up to over the past week or so. Um, you know what? I've been looking into Vue, like the the Vue JS. JavaScript library? Is that what we're talking V-U-E, about? V-U-E, yeah, the JavaScript uh, framework. I'm I'm thinking about maybe possibly doing a, a front-end project kind of on the side. Nice. And um, so I decided to take a look at the frameworks out there because all the sure. stuff that I've done over the past five, seven years has always been so simple that I could pretty much get away with just vanilla HTML and JavaScript and, and just kind of be done with it. But this next one I think I'm going to be doing is, is going to be a little heavier. So I figure, well, let me take a look at the frameworks that I've been hearing about for forever that I've been yeah. stuck doing back-end stuff. And I haven't really done much of the uh, front-end in, in a long time. So I said, let me look at Angular. Let me look at React. Let me look at Vue. And what can I get in the fastest? And that looks yeah. like Vue. It looks like Vue is, is my winner. So um, just a little how I kind of went about this, you know, I've been, I've been looking on stuff online, reading the docs, you know, trying not to spend too much time evaluating this stuff, but just saying, okay, what's important to me and that's speed to get things started and some, some of the key feature sets. So I took a look at some of the feature sets and you know what? They, they're all great. <laughs> all these front end, you know, these current front end frameworks are all phenomenal. They're all fantastic. And I think what sold me on view is that it's just simpler just to get started. There's there's not a lot of things in the box. You could add it if you need it, but it's just a, a heck of a lot simpler. And um, it, it's there's a lot of kind of templating that I'm kind of used to. So I'm in the middle of taking a look at some Pluralsight courses, one from uh, our buddy, John Papa. Uh, he's a really great big picture course on Vue. So um, I went through that and um, probably going to sit through another Pluralsight course. And I, I'll, oh, if I didn't have Pluralsight, because Pluralsight provided me by my employer, I would have totally done Sarah Drasner's view course. That's on uh, front-end masters, right? Is that where it is? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. But since I already had this, it was already paid for. <laughs> I just went ahead, and, <laughs> sure. just went ahead and, and, and did this. But so I'm looking forward to doing some more front-end work after so many years just being doing processing on the back end, which I love and I adore. You know, one of the things I really like about Liu, kind of like what you mentioned, is like its simplicity. 
And yeah. Evan Yu, the creator of Yu, who, you know, at the time of this recording, just last week, went on a podcast and talked a little bit about the release of View 3. And one of the core goals they had with View is for it to be one, a framework that you could start with easily, but also a framework that grows with you as well. And I love, oh. kind of like what you mentioned, I love how simple it is to get started. It doesn't have a lot of stuff in it. It's HTML, it's JavaScript, and you put it in a, you know, a view file and you kind of get going. But I also love how if you need to become, you know, write a more complicated application in the future, then you could start talking about, oh, I could break things out in components and I can have my thing separated this way and that way. And I could add TypeScript support if I wanted to. And, yep. and, you know, all these additional things that you might want later on. But I think the big point for me is always how easy is it for me to get started? How good is the documentation? Because I'm probably going to read that at some point. And, you know, if I need help, are there people that I could go ask and talk to to get um, some support? You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some people thinking right now that's saying, why didn't Richie just ask Cecil what he should use? Because he obviously <laughs> knows infinitely more about this stuff than anyone else uh, that I know. And I'm like, you know, sometimes I need to see for myself, you know, you need to take a look at it and, you know, and then go in a direction. I knew you knew all this stuff because I see you all the time on webcasts and vidcasts <laughs> talking about this ad nauseum. But I'm like, you know what? I, you know, th these are mature enough products where I don't need to be jumping, like do doing risk. There's no risk in any of these things at all. But, you know, yeah. you, sometimes you just need to take a look at yourself like, okay, well, well, what makes it different other than hearing someone else, you know, tell you what's different? It's almost like picking cars, right? Like we yeah. all, we all have our different opinions and different likes and dislikes about the type of car that we buy or the type of house that we want or, you know, the type of shoes that we want. You know, when you look at all the different frameworks that are there, there's something different for everyone. And I'd even say there's also something different for every application. So depending yeah. on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to build, it's always good to take a look at what's out there and make the decision that's best for, you know, the project that you have going on at that moment. Yeah, man. Yeah. So what you've been up to? You know, we've all been home and social distancing still because, you know, if case if folks have not remembered this, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Please stay home. Oh, my gosh. Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> I think some people have forgotten, but just to, just FYI, just to remind you, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Since we've been at home so much, I've actually been spending a lot more time on my Xbox, a little bit more time playing games than I usually would have. And Xbox, a couple of months ago, this is, this is not a new thing, but it's new to me because I never messed with it before. Xbox has a cloud streaming feature, which I think is really cool. So if you have Xbox Game Pass, which is their Netflix for games type situation, you can download the Xbox app on your phone the game, Xbox Game Pass app on your phone, and you could connect your Xbox controller to your phone via Bluetooth, and you could play any of the games streams to your phone. So that means I actually don't even need the console. It works, I believe it works for, I believe it works for Android devices. Um, for some reason, Apple doesn't believe in having those types of things in their app store. So it, it, as of this moment, it's not on iOS. But if you had a Android tablet, or if you had an Android phone, you could do that. Um, if you had a Windows PC, then there's a separate app called Xbox Game Pass for PC. But it's the same situation. So I actually don't need a console. No, you should buy the Xbox console because it's good business. But you, know, you don't need it. You just you need a controller. You need a device. And you pay for the subscription. It's a monthly subscription. And you know, I was playing Arkham Knight on my phone the other day. Uh, played a little bit of Streets of Rage. I haven't tried playing any sports games on it. I'm a little concerned about that. I think I might need a new phone for that. But I mean, so far, everything's been pretty nice. 
Well, you know, I remember a short time on this podcast when you used to talk about playing your Nintendo Switch, and now you've completely switched to be all company <laughs> line, man. Look at that. So I'm looking forward to your PS5 review uh, coming out uh, in, November, in November. <laughs> well, I still play my Switch, actually. Uh, so speaking of that, like me, me and the family, we have a Switch Sundays thing that we do. So I have my goddaughters and some friends of mine from Antigua. We all get online on a WhatsApp call. And we we play Smash Brothers, which is super. Cool. Ah. So the Switch is still there, still play that. Um, but I was just really interested about this world of game streaming. Yeah, and that's not streaming from I'm watching other people stream, but I want to stream the game to my device without having to necessarily download it, without having to go buy a disc or something like that. And I could just connect a controller to a thing with a screen and I could just play. I think that's really interesting. It's the future. Yeah, I think what you'll see going forward, the catalog isn't the deepest, right? As you can imagine. Mm-hmm. There's probably something that you have to turn on and some licensing and whatnot that has to happen with the game publisher. But, you know, so far the games have been pretty good. It's a different world out there, man. It's a different world. Yes. I, mean, I, just, I just remember, you know, sliding in a cartridge in my NES and saying, wow, this is arcade quality at home. This is amazing. I remember blowing out cartridges. <laughs> yes, that's right. Blowing the dust out constantly. That's right. So who are we talking to today? All right. So today we're talking to Eugene Meidinger. So Eugene works as a Power BI consultant and a full-time Pluralsight author. He talks about a wide variety of data issues on the SQL Data Partners podcast. But more importantly, he's a lifelong fan of board games and a recent wargamer. Do you know what a wargamer is? I have no idea what a wargamer is. We going to find out. Guess we will. <laughs> this episode was recorded on January 18th, 2018. And now, our conversation with Eugene Meidinger. That felt good to say. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So for today's episode of Away From The Keyboard, I want to introduce Eugene Meidinger. What's going on, Eugene? Um, nothing much. I'm excited to be on the podcast. This should be a lot of fun. Sure. Thank you so much for being on. So before we kind of get into all the cool things you're working on, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a business intelligence consultant or a database developer. So I do work for customers with SSRS, Power BI, SQL, a little bit of database administration, that kind of stuff. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and am not particularly happy about the amount of snow and cold that's out right now, but I've been living here my my whole life, and I'm definitely a huge fan of uh, video games and, and board games especially. You know, you talk about snow and ice. Like, it's 41 degrees right now in Fort Lauderdale, and I am freezing, okay? <laughs> like, it is freezing cold to me. I've got family down in, um, what is it, Melbourne, Florida, and we were down there for like Thanksgiving. And my cousin Kestrel has acclimated, so she was wearing like a sweater or something. And we're like, it's warm down here. It's nice. So I, I can understand that. Did you grow up in Melbourne? Uh, no, no, no. It's funny. So I, um, I've i been in the Pittsburgh area my entire life. And that part of the family were in a, a place called uh, Greensburg or Irwin, which is basically uh, two counties over on the other side of Pittsburgh. And what happened was both of my Aunt Casey's kids went to Florida colleges because the out-of-state tuition was just so cheap mm-hmm. is, I think, what happened. And then my cousin Kestrel ended up just moving down there, and her mom finally moved down kind of with them. So a bunch of them just moved down there because they had gone to school there, and my cousin Kestrel's husband, Alex, he works for uh, 
Raytheon, and he basically he's basically a government hacker. Like he can't really talk much about what he does day to day, but he oh, finds like people? vulnerabilities. Yeah, well, he finds vulnerabilities in like executables and stuff, and works for a government contractor. But it's great because when he has to come home to his wife and he's had like a rough day, he can't tell her exactly what he did. So he has to use like these really weird analogies. He was like, well, imagine like you have this barn and you're trying to set it up and then, you know, one of the walls falls down or just like he, he can't, he literally can't tell his wife what he does most days. It's, it's really funny. The reason I ask is because, um, so I went to school in Melbourne, actually. I went to Florida Tech. Oh, nice. Nice. I know Kestrel went to one of the art schools. I can't remember the name. And then my cousin Tansy went to film school down there. Again, I'm, I'm just blanking on the, on the names, both of them and then, and Alex went to school in, in Florida as well. So it's just funny that they all ended up going down there. I think a lot because of the tuition. And now I have a decent amount of family down in down in Melbourne. Nice. So Eugene, before we, we kind of really start digging into it, why don't you tell me how is it that you really got into technology? Like what was the thing that really drove you to to make this a, your career? It's weird because like um I've always had interest in bits and pieces. I started learning programming in like junior high school maybe maybe earlier i did some programming in high school but honestly the career piece a lot of that was just my brother was in the same career and i i went to a college i went to the same college as him i knew the professors and so like from the career aspect it all just kind of lined up but um i've been doing programming since middle school probably um so it's always been an interest truthfully for a while i thought i was going to be a professor and then just ended up doing business intelligence instead if you decided to become a professor today, like what would you be teaching? Yeah, I feel I feel so so weird about like the whole professor thing because a lot of that was driven by when I was younger. I was you know I was in the gifted program. I was a I was a smart kid, and so I made the mistake of assuming that my grades were my personal value. Do you know what I mean? I was I was definitely the kind of kind of kid who got a B in college and would like cry over it, which is just really unhealthy. And so it made perfect sense that, oh, well, the extrapolation of that is you're going to be a professor. I probably would teach on databases because that's what I, I know. And I was going to go into computer science and, and be a professor in that. But I think at this point in my life, I'm able to get all of the stuff that I've wanted out of like being a professor, but get paid a lot better by being a corporate chill. Because I do a lot of presentations with... Um, SQL Saturdays and uh, local user groups. I help run Power BI user group and I'm like every other presenter for that. And I'm doing Pluralsight and I'm actually getting paid to basically teach people in that way. So I'm getting to do all the teaching and presenting that I would want to do. So at this point, you know, there's not nearly as much interest in, in becoming a professor because I'm able to make a lot more money in the corporate world and I'm still able to do all the teaching and presenting that I would want to do. One of the things I also see about a lot of the folks that we speak to that are also consultants is that they really get into creating like online courses, you know, whether it's Udemy or, you know, they have their own platform or even Pluralsight. And I know you are also a Pluralsight author, right? Right. So I've got one course out right now on Power BI and Data Gateways. And then I've got one that I'm wrapping up. So hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll be out about the DAX language, which is kind of the data modeling language for Power BI and SQL Server Analysis Services. And that's definitely been a very fulfilling path that I'm excited about. So what made you decide to start doing online courses? Like, do you really have like that teaching? Because you spoke about being a professor before, right? So was that teaching itch like kind of still in you to do that? So I'd already gotten a lot of that itch scratch with the the SQL Saturday stuff. Quite honestly, 
it was more of a bucket list or dream kind of thing. Like I didn't expect to actually be able to get to do it. it. It's funny. A lot of stuff last year that was on the bucket list got crossed off when it comes to the career stuff. And I think a part of it was, I guess there were two things. So one of the co-leaders for uh, the Power Bay User Group, Stephanie Bruno, she's the reason that I got to speak at past summit. And that's because like two years ago, we were grabbing lunch and, and getting to meet, you know, talking about the, like starting up the user group and all that. And it was, it was her idea, but she was looking for some help. She's like, have you submitted to summit? I'm like, I'm not qualified to present summit. And she's like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm like, oh, I guess I'll waste a few hours. So I submitted, uh, dude, if they let me speak at this past summit, you're qualified. I know. Well, I've learned that now. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, but two years ago, I submitted, didn't get in. And then last year, I did submit and did two presentations. Heaven knows why. Um, <laughs> part of that, like her pushing me, I, I realized, you know what? I really should just try and do some more of this stuff that I think is kind of a little bit outside of the reach. And the the idea of Pluralsight and that sort of thing has always appealed to me from like a passive income perspective. And I'm, I'm kind of just getting there with that because whenever I got my first course done, you know, I won't say how much it's bringing in, but it's bringing in hundreds per month right? Like it's, it's decent money. And so whenever I finished my first course, I was able to go to my boss and say, Hey, I want to work part-time now. And he's like, well, that sucks. Uh, but we don't want to fire you. So I guess we'll figure it out. Right. Cause whenever I do the customer work, you know, the customers are always really happy, but you know, I've been doing more internal stuff than I kind of was expecting and just wasn't happy where things were going. And that was part of the motivation too, with the plural site is like, if I can start doing plural site, and start getting in passive income and replace my income, then I've got a lot more flexibility with what I'm doing for my career and all that. So I enjoy Pluralsight a lot because of the teaching aspect. But honestly, the two big reasons I I applied for it was it was a bucket list thing and I didn't think I was going to get in, but what did I have to lose? And just the idea of being able to... Go for it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe have some better, you know economic flexibility so and it's worked out I'm, I'm very lucky so you'd mentioned a little bit you know when we we're just talking that you have diabetes so i am a i'm a type 1 diabetic you know it's funny i it's one of those things i get a little paranoid about sometimes because you know you hear horror stories about someone losing a job opportunity because the company finds out that they're a health risk or something like that and i have to give a lot of kudos to scott hanselman for being like so out of the closet you could say about like diabetes and that kind of stuff. Out of the diabetes closet. Let's let's clarify that. Yes. I, I feel like that was implied, but I'll, I'll take the clarification. Uh, Scott Hansman is fully out of the diabetes closet, which is distinct from other closets. But uh, yeah, so it was it was a weird thing because I got it when I was, I want to say like 23, something like that. And I was definitely very overweight and they, they misdiagnosed me. So in November, I started getting acute symptoms. So I was thirsty all the time, going to the bathroom, um, fatigued, all this stuff. And it was it was weird because I was getting compliments at work because I was losing body weight. I was losing fat. Well, it turns out that there's this process called diabetic ketone acidosis, where basically if your body can't process sugar, it'll process body fat in order to produce energy. It terrifies me when anyone talks about like a ketogenic diet because you're basically starving your body so it dissolves body fat. And I think about how that landed me in the hospital because I had these symptoms for about a month, month and a half. And then literally a couple of days before Christmas, I was going to be visiting uh, my family down in Melbourne for, for Christmas. And I start 
like throwing up in the middle of the night. And in the morning, I tell my dad, hey, you know, we should probably go to like a Med Express or something. You know, I'm not feeling good. I, I think I have a stomach bug. I've been throwing up. I've been feeling bad for a while. And he says, yeah, no, that makes sense. And then I say, oh, and I'm having some heart palpitations. And he's like, let's go to the hospital. I think we're going to go to the hospital. So we go to the hospital and they they take some samples and the doctor comes in and is like, what do you know about diabetes? And I said, well, I know I'm pre-diabetic. I'm, I'm pretty overweight. And he says, no, you're diabetic, diabetic. And I'm like, what? So they keep me there for probably four days, a couple of days in critical care, which as a diabetic is is terrible because literally some some gentleman or some woman comes every hour to prick your finger um, and check your blood, even if you're sleeping. So mm-hmm. literally you're trying to sleep and then every hour some some person comes by and just pricks your finger and you're like, yeah. Um, <laughs> that must be so uncomfortable. Oh, it's terrible. Although I, I wish I remember the name of the one, the guys there, because he had told me, you know, your life's going to get better because you're going to be- take better care of yourself. And it was really comforting. But yeah, I spent, a, uh, they moved me to just one of the regular rooms. I was there for a couple of days. And um, like a doofus, I, I, I told my girlfriend that, you know, I understand if she wants to break up with me. And she's like, she would smack me over the head if she could. <laughs> I was, you know, because I was so scared of like, oh, now I'm a burden. I'm basically a burden now. And she was just glad I wasn't dead. So I really didn't have a good emotional read on the situation. But like I said, they, they misdiagnosed me. So they, they ran some tests and I'd come back negative for type 1 diabetes. Actually, no, that was later. When I was in the hospital, they didn't know. And so in the hospital, they just showed me how to take care of it. And in the hospital, it's very different than like the, the real world because they were using like vials and syringes for the insulin and they had bigger like uh, needles for the finger prick tests. So you feel like a heroin junkie or something because you're doing the whole like hold the needle upside down, spray it out, flick it kind of thing. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. But I got home and I took the whole thing really seriously. So I started exercising, dieting, a lot of stuff, and I lost a lot of weight. And so by the time I saw the, like the endocrinologist again, I was off the insulin, right? I didn't, I didn't need it anymore. Right. And they had done some blood work, and I came back negative for type one. So like, oh, you're just you're type two. So type one is autoimmune disorder. Your body attacks the pancreas, and you just can't make insulin. Type 2, um, and they're really totally different diseases. Type 2 is your body's insulin resistant. And generally, you're just getting old and heavier. And so your body needs more insulin to do the same job. So they they thought, okay, well, you were overweight. You know, this happened in your mid-20s. You're probably just type 2. Test came back negative. And so for an entire year, I thought I had beaten diabetes because I wasn't on insulin. I didn't need it. But there's a thing called the honeymoon period where your pancreas is still working a little bit. And so... After about a year, it was just completely kaput. And they tested me again. It turned out I was type 1. And I was really, really sad because I thought I had overcome this. I had beaten it. I would lost all this weight. Right. And it turned out that, no, I'm insulin dependent. And so now I, uh, I basically have to take an injection four times a day. Um, I have to, every time I eat a meal and once at night for, for my background insulin, my basal insulin. So excuse my, excuse my ignorance a little bit because, again, I just I, I don't know about this too much so diabetes is not a curable condition well it depends so type one is incurable type two can be in some people cured through lifestyle changes right so type one basically means that your pancreas has been torched so to speak and there's some Mm -hmm. research with like stem cell implants and that sort of thing but pretty much you know like i don't have hold any hope for it being cured Type 2, it depends on what caused it because basically your pancreas is still working. Maybe it's a little burnt out, but it's still producing insulin, but your body's not responding to the insulin. And if, mm-hmm. and so if you're a type 2, if you suddenly like lose 60 pounds and start exercising every day, 
and eating stuff that's low on the glycemic index, so it doesn't the sugar doesn't enter your bloodstream as quickly, you can potentially go completely off any medication. And like if if I had type two, I would do that in a heartbeat. Um, but yeah, the the version that I have is uh, at least currently uncurable. So you're so so pretty much like you just have to be on medication for the rest of my life. Yeah, anytime I eat food, I have to take an injection. Um, at some point, I could go on a pump. I, I really don't want to do that. But as it stands right now, uh, for the rest of my life, if I want to eat food, I have to take injections. So you mentioned Scott Hanselman, and I know one of the things that he does on his blog, and again, that he's very open about, is that he he does this um, hack yourself yeah. thing where you know he, he, he uses all these little devices and he finds little interesting pieces of technology to help him manage his condition. Do you do anything similar to that, or do you have any special devices you have to use? I could do some of that, but it, it just hasn't been worth the effort. Like I find the idea really cool. I do have a continuous glucose meter. So I do have a thing that basically checks my interstitial fluid every five minutes to tell me what my blood sugar is. But, but I just haven't had the need to try and like communicate that online to a loved one or do any kind of analysis on it. So it was something that I definitely looked into. But for me right now, I basically have, it's the equivalent of like a pager or it looks a lot like a... 2000s iPod or something like that, but a little bit chunkier. And it basically tells me what my blood sugar is every five minutes. And it'll uh, alert me if it gets too high or too low. And and for now, for me, that's been sufficient. But as a type one, it is really hard just to get by with the finger pricks where you check your blood sugar, you know, four times a day or something like that, because you just have so, so much less control over it. So Getting on a continuous meter has been really helpful. I think it's really cool. Some of the stuff he does, like he showed how to have it so that in your command prompt, <laughs> your blood sugar shows up and where it's going and all that. But for me, uh, there just hasn't been enough of a need to kind of dig into that yet. So with your condition, do you, I mean, has it affected your family at all or the way that you work or do you have it pretty much well managed for the most part? It hasn't had too much of an impact and i've gotten better about being a little bit more open about it. when i like when i first got it again i was worried about you know it was going to cause problems that project that i did in access and power pivot one of the funniest the most embarrassing things was when i thought the customer wasn't looking i basically like palmed a bunch of sugar that was for coffee because i was having a low blood sugar and they're like what are you doing <laughs> i'm like i'm having a low blood sugar and they're like well here let me get you a candy bar right like i'd made a much bigger deal of it than i needed to the one other time i can think of where it like impacted work and I feel so terrible. This was early in the career. Um, we were doing a big ERP migration. My my coworker and I were working on Saturday. I tell him, hey, uh, I'm having a low blood sugar. I'm going to go to the bathroom to, to check. Uh, if I don't come back in like 10 minutes, come after me. That's apparently a very like alarming thing to tell someone. <laughs> so I probably, yeah, probably should have phrased it differently. Rewarded it a little yeah, bit. exactly. You know, in a different yeah. way. But otherwise, it hasn't had too much of an impact. I mean, certainly people are are curious and stuff with the family. But it's funny, my wife, when I got hospitalized a little bit after that, she looked up some YouTube videos about, okay, being a partner of someone with diabetes. And she's just always so appreciative that I do take it seriously because the videos are like, you know, make sure they don't lose their foot or make sure they don't go blind or, or whatever. Because if, if it's unmanaged, geez, you, you lose, you get something called a neuropathy where you lose sensation in your extremities. Uh, you get something called retinopathy where um, you can cause damage to your eyes. So there's a lot of stuff where, that you can damage if it's not controlled. Um, but thankfully, right. thankfully, it has been. So my wife Annie's just really appreciative that I actually take care of myself, truthfully. 
Cool. Yeah, because I'm sure that support again from the from your family is extremely important. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, and and there's there's a fine line that Annie and I try to balance because like you know how much junk food do you keep in the house, right? Because like my yeah. life would be a lot easier if we didn't have any, but you know at the same time I want her to be able to live her life, so we try to find a a balance with a healthy balance. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure the story is going to be really helpful for you know, our listeners that may have diabetes or even other similar diseases to kind of just hear, hear your story, yeah. right. And hear how, you know, you're still able to be successful and do your job and have a, you know, have a family life. and still be able to manage your health at the same time. So we really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. Why don't we move over to some, some lighter conversation? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a, you know, we could cut this off. No, 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 you're, you're, you're fine. Good. One of the things we really wanted to talk to you about you're really into gaming, right? Like yeah. Playing video games and board games and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And so, why don't you tell us, like, how did you get into board games? Like, what's some of the games you play in? You know, like, what's like, what do you really like about that? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, in retrospect, I think one of the reasons that I got into board games so much is because meeting me, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm an introvert, right? So like, no. Yeah. People... A tech guy and the introvert. I know. Say it isn't um, so. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Well, like, you, you know, you say that, but I, I definitely made an intentional effort once I got an IT to work on my social skills because I didn't want to get put into that bucket. But yeah, no, people just wear me out. And whenever I was younger, I really wasn't the best with like interacting with people. And board games are really nice because there's structured socialization. Like there's rules and there's things that you're supposed to be doing. And you could play like Settlers of Catan and say almost nothing except, hey, you want to you trade this wood for a brick or something like that. And so I think one of the reasons I definitely found it so appealing is it was a way to engage my brain, but it was also a way to like interact with other people in a kind of controlled environment. The first couple games that I found out about were the stuff by Looney Lab. So if you've ever played Flux, which is only a semblance of a game once you like actually get down to it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, stuff by them, Aquarius, uh, some other games. I, I got started with that and then I found out about Settlers of Catan. And after that, it was kind of off to the races. Although it's funny. So Settlers of Catan is this like the quintessential gateway game or gateway game for like family strategy, German strategy, board games. And we would play like 10 hour days of it with my my cousins and my brother and I. But the problem is if your family isn't big gamers, at a certain point you move on and they they haven't. <laughs> and they still want to play the same really? old stuff. And you're like, can we play something new? And actually, the <laughs> the first but, but recorded... We've only pl- but we've only played yeah. this twice. What do you mean you want to go to another game? I know. Oh, it was the worst with my cousin Tansy because like she would want a random board every time, right? After a while. And I wanted yep. to like do some of the scenarios in the book. I want to make sure it was balanced. And she's like, no, can we just like like throw all the hexes down and see where they land and just have these long stringy islands? And I'm like, that's not balanced. And then, like, I'm like, fine, you guys can set it up. But they're like, Eugene, can you help fix the numbers so they're a little bit fairer? I'm like, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, um, I will win this. So it's funny. the The first like digital recorded interaction between me and my now wife is me being a board game hipster because she had posted about like really enjoying Catan, and my response was, "Oh, that's so '90s, right?" Like, that's if you go on Facebook, that's the first interaction between the two of us. Yes, she still married but- me. But if she said she she's a big fan of Twilight Imperium three, even though they were released in the same year, she would be like uber geek, right? Yeah. Uh, she, so it's mild tangent. There's this uh, board game convention that sadly hasn't run the past two years in Pittsburgh called Gascon. We we went to it, and 
her brother wanted to play Twilight Imperium with her and like two other people. None of them had played it before. So I, I just look and I'm like, you poor souls. I, I feel. <laughs> and I don't think they succeeded in playing it, but you know, it takes like six hours at the best of times. Um, yeah. I mean, at, at best, I mean, yeah. typically I think games are like eight hours. And it, it, if, if you have yeah. more people, like uh, I think it plays up to six, it could take like 12 hours to play. Yeah. So, so going back, like Settlers, I guess Settlers of Catan was my gateway game as well as um, Heroescape, even though I didn't actually really get to play it that much, but I have a bunch of the terrain. Um, but I think that was kind of how I found out about the local game group, Gasp, um, which does still run every month. And so I got involved with that and that was just really enjoyable way to connect and socialize. So I, I don't know if you guys have um, high school, uh, like senior projects in Florida, but here in Pennsylvania, we have to do a a graduation project. And so a lot of people do like volunteer work or whatever, but you can do a creative project. So I decided, okay, I'm going to make a board game. Um, And I made a really crappy board game. And it's like in the shed at my dad's house. One of the things where you had to find somebody like related to the industry if you want to do a creative project. So the example is if you want to write a novel, you have to find like an English teacher or a novelist or someone to be your mentor. You have to have a mentor. Well, I found like the one board game developer in the Pittsburgh area at the time. I think the guy who does like tiny epic stuff is in Pittsburgh now. Uh, this was, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. And so I found uh, Neil Solfka, who runs Fat Messiah Games, and they haven't made anything new for like a decade or two, but he was my my mentor. And I made a game called Antarchy. And it was literally like the hypothetical example that I had on my proposal, right? So you have to give an example. I'm like, oh, well, I could make a game about warring ant colonies. And then I couldn't think of anything more interesting afterwards. Did like 60 hours of playtesting. Even after that, it was still still just a terrible game. And it would have taken probably like two more years of playtesting and refinement to make something worth trying to even maybe sell or get published or, or something like that. But it was it was a really, really cool experience. Yeah, I've always big on board games. I have a, a decent sized collection. But, you know, there's only been like a couple things that have ever allowed me to really get out of my head. You know, that's been board games, uh game dev programming competitions uh certain first person shooters and since i know we're going to get to the subject at some point uh larp more recently <laughs> so i mean those have been the only things that have really allowed me to like just turn off my brain and and stop you know thinking about stuff so i i know that we get asked this question all the time over twitter and whenever i get asked a question i know i throw you and a couple of folks in yeah, yeah. i know we're technical then i know that our, our board gamers but you know hearing all these names and Settlers of Catan and Flux and right, right. Twilight Imperium 3 and oh my God, it takes eight hours to play and why would anybody ever do that? Um, if somebody's interested into the hobby, maybe even just playing with family and friends, what are the type of games that they should be looking at? There's two different things they should be looking at. I, I think I would say like gateway, like Euro style games and then like really light fun family party games by which I definitely don't mean cards against humanity or I, you know, I was thinking about this so, yesterday, so, but I mean, even, even the term terminology is scary, right? A Euro game gateway game. What is, what does all that mean? But you know, what are like some titles that, that they should probably go to and maybe the descriptions that go along with it that kind of give people a little bit of grammar, you know, to the, to the hobby. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple different broad categorizations, that kind of stuff, but just starting with some concrete examples. Um, I would say if you're just starting, you can't go wrong with Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride. Both are considered gateway games, which like gateway drugs get you hooked and then move you on to harder stuff. 
they're they're nice for a couple different reasons um they're they're both european strategy games which means that they have a certain flavor that we're not used to in america and so one of a couple of the big defining characteristics of that is that they've got a couple different paths to victory you know they don't have early player elimination and you don't always know who's winning at any given time Uh, contrast that with monopoly right which is very much an american style game and it's or kind of this Ameritrash. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, right, if you want right to be there? a pe- yeah. pejorative. Um, yes, or Ameritrash. Because in things like Monopoly, you know who's winning because it's whoever has the most money, generally speaking. You know, you, you can easily have someone be eliminated early because they landed on Boardwalk at the wrong time. And now the game's not fun for them because they're out of the game. There's no chance they're going to make a comeback, that sort of thing. And there's not really multiple paths to victory. It's just buy stuff and have money. One of my favorite things about Settlers of Catan is that you have to cooperate at some point or you're going to lose. Like it's got this really great switch. It, I, I, I call it Monopoly done right because you're, you're still buying locations. You're getting different types of resources instead of just one thing of just money. But I love it because at the beginning, you have to cooperate because you can't make all the stuff you need by yourself. Because if you want to make uh, a settlement, you need four different types of resources and you're probably only producing two of them. So you have to look at your your cousin next to you and go, hey, you want to trade this for this? But there becomes a certain point where you're like, wait a minute, Paul's winning. We need to turn against him. No more trades with Paul. That's right. um, <laughs> and it's great because part of being good at that game is knowing where that turning point is and going right up against it and you know not trading with paul when it when he suddenly is you know within the grasp of a victory oh and paul gets so upset at that point oh <laughs> poor paul <laughs> so, I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you that like so ameritrash games have a lot more take that mechanics Eurostar games usually not as much obviously there's the robber and settlers of Catan, but the the funniest dirtiest trick i've ever ever seen in settlers of Catan, and i think it's common and probably a little bit debated is there's this card called the monopoly card which lets you take if i remember it's been a while all the resources of a certain type or at least two from everybody something like that right and then and the funniest thing is whenever someone has a monopoly card and then they pretend that they want that resource so they're offering like trades they're like oh man i i really need some some wood some lumber i've got um does anyone want to trade for trade some lumber i've got some stone i've got some wheat does anyone want to trade? And then they're like, oh, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I've got some. I've got some. And you're like, oh, I, I'm going to hold off for right now. And then you play Monopoly. And now that you know that everyone has a bunch of that resource, you just take all of it and just crush everybody. That's probably like the dirtiest thing in Settlers of Catan. And it's hilarious. So LARP. <laughs> yeah, the elephant in the room. What is this LARP thing that we've been hearing about? Yeah, so like it's funny because whenever my my wife was going we were dating and she's like you should come and i told her like it's so dorky that if i go with you you'll break up with me for being too much of a dork and then we got married and she's like well i know you're not going to divorce me so you're coming and i was like well that's fair and so i went and i actually enjoyed it a lot and i had all these misconceptions because we've all seen like the gif of someone shouting magic missile and throwing like these pellets or whatever um and so you know you 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 hear like the worst caricature from the internet and you think it's for like antisocial people that can't But do they interact. have the wand of magic missile? I mean there are they doing five at the same no never mind. So yeah. There are there are wands in the one that I do, but generally we're throwing uh they're they're called spell packets, but they're basically like cloth with birdseed and rubber bands so that if like you throw them and you can't find them, you don't like damage the environment or kill birds or anything like that. 
Um, <laughs> but no, I, I do, I do love it because it's basically, you know, it's a lot of like that RPG piece, but you're out in the woods, you're walking around on some boy scout camp or something like that. Honestly, it's been amazing for a couple of reasons. Just like, you, you know, you talk about getting away from the keyboard. Well, walking outside, being away from any screens, being hyper social, right? Because again, with my line of work or just life in general, I don't get to interact with a lot of people. And so being in a situation where other people are forced to interact with you, whether they're, you know, NPCs and they're pretending to be goblins or they're merchants or whatever, it's just so nice. And it's been one of the best ways for me to disconnect. But I play a gypsy healer. So most of my job is uh, healing people whenever they, they go down. But I, I enjoy it a lot, truthfully. So what, what type of things do you need when you... LAR- and give it a general definition because maybe folks listening to it don't know what LARPing is and maybe they're just scratching their heads right now. Yeah, yeah. So, so it stands for live action role playing. And so probably for people who are like completely uninitiated, the best way to describe it is we've all played hide and go seek. We've all played tag. And sometimes we've played like more complicated versions of those things. Like when I was young, we played zombie tag, which was the coolest thing. It was like this homebrew game. And we had it. So one person started out as like this fast zombie and he tagged more people and got slower and they were all zombies and that sort of thing. So like imagine one of these childhood games, but then add a lot more layers of complexity and add two or three times as many people, right? So now you have 60 or 70 people on the woods who are dressing up, who are in character, and they're playing in this kind of Tolkien-esque world where you might have uh, elves and halflings and goblins and trolls and ogres and, and all that kind of stuff. But generally, the, the way that works is like a lot of role-playing games where you have some sort of quest or encounter, and then a lot of times you go and fight monsters, or you might try and talk your way out of a situation. And so... The combat, it's basically, a lot of cases, foam swords, that kind of stuff, um, shields for like the magic casters. You're throwing, like I said, these spell packets, which are basically like cloth with bird seed. Depending on what race you're playing, there's a little bit of dress up required, but usually it's not bad. If you're a human, like I'm a gypsy, so I have to wear like colorful garb is the requirement. If you're a half elf, you have to either have like something for pointy ears or like some eyebrow uh, marker for like pointier eyebrows or something like that. If you're uh, an ogre or half ogre, you have to have like yellow face paint, that sort of thing. So there's not a lot in terms of requirements, but it's just, it's fun to like, I don't know. For me, it combines aspects of all these things I enjoy. Like I took acting in in high school. I really enjoy acting. You know, I, I enjoy improv. I, I enjoy role-playing aspects. So it takes all these fun social interactive kind of things and then it puts you outdoors and you're walking around you're getting exercise and you're just getting away from everything and so it's just this great combination of all these different pieces are you following a particular rule set is you know is what's preventing a rogue to go completely rogue and just started whacking people with a foam sword yeah, no, there's definitely there's definitely a rule set. So it's the the group is called Circle of Swords Quest. And so it's it's not like a franchise like some, but there's a rule book and there's marshals and the way that it works is there's plot rotation. So basically the player base is broken up into thirds. And so pretty much every third event you're NPC and you don't have to pay as much because it's 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 still fun to NPC, but it's not the main attraction, right? Right. So basically like every hour or so, you know, you're getting thrown to some sort of quest and now you're a goblin or you're a golem or something like that there's a lot of honor system but there is a the rule book that says you know okay you have this type of sword so you're going to do three damage or, or something like that but then there's also like safety 
stuff. You're not supposed to swing more than uh, like 45 degree angles. You're not allowed to hit on someone's uh, like their head or the the back or certain parts. You call holds if there's a rules question or if like someone falls, everyone calls a hold and you stop and you make sure they're okay and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, if you have... You don't kick him when he's down? Come on, mm-hmm. this isn't realistic at all. I know. That's fair. There's a certain like, you know, suspension of disbelief you have to engage in. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely rule sets that that give it this like uh this framework and if if you break the rules basically three times then you're you're out right so the first time you get a warning the second time you get a a warning and like you lose a certain amount of skill points in your character and then the third time you're just you're just out um but generally that's not a problem there is a bit of honor system because like no one's really keeping track of your mana or your hit points that's kind of on you to be honest and so you know there's always a worry about some people who are just you know you've 30 mana and you just pretend that you have more, right? Like there's sometimes uh, marshals might like if there's a big town fight, are keep, be keeping track of like how much you're casting and that sort of thing. But generally, there's a little bit of honor code there. It, it, it's interesting because you know I, I've the only thing I've heard about LARPing is pretty much commercials. Like I've never right. seen anybody do it. I never and it it just it looks silly, but it kind of looks fun at the same time. Yeah, I mean it, it's basically adult hide and go seek tag whatever. I don't know. There's there's something really interesting about that because there's there's a, a a higher level of maturity there. One of the things I love the most is so my character like I'm a healer and I'm like semi pacifist. You can't go full pacifist in this game because you'll just get clobbered. I have an ability called charisma where like three times per day I can basically make someone my friend. So I have to hit them with this packet. Basically, if I if I successfully hit them and they're like a lesser monster, they're not allowed to hurt me anymore. And usually from a role playing perspective, I'm so persuasive. They're like, hey buddy, how's it going? So essentially, you're, you're a cleric casting friendship. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's exactly it. My favorite modules are ones where like you expect to be just, you know, murder hobos, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> and just killing everything. And instead, you find some way to like talk, talk your way out of the situation. And I don't know, it's, it's really cool to be able to like use your brain in this lateral social kind of way and solve a problem that doesn't involve code. We'd like to thank Eugene for being a guest on our show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTKpodcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have a special guest. Stay tuned and you'll find out who it is. Yeah, because we don't know either. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Peace. to thank you for listening to away from the keyboard as a reminder we will have new episodes each and every week you can interact with us on twitter at aftk podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com hasta luego
I had a I had a friend of mine. He's been playing D and D of some format for like the last twenty twenty five years, and so uh, yeah. he 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 tells a story once how they uh, him and his party were going down into some sort of dungeon or whatever, and they yeah, his character being a bard, he was able and his charisma was very high. He right. was able to go and talk his way out of every fight that they went into, and nobody. <laughs> And nobody got was able to throw, you know, a punch or a swing or, or any hit points were lost, and they yeah. were able to just talk their way throughout this dungeon. And <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's crazy because you, you you take a look at RPGs and things like that, and your Dungeons and Dragons, and you, you think, oh, you're just going in fighting monsters and all that, and it's like it's so much of a deeper game than that. How someone with the right dice rolls and with the the right, uh, you know. Uh, things to say and the dungeon master kind of will accept that can just walk in the dungeon <laughs> walk his way out through every fight <laughs> and walks out successfully with whatever they were supposed to fight it, it's it, you know and it's not just a bunch of nerds just getting together you know doing math it's you know there's a very social aspect to it that right um i guess larping more even probably more so because you're in the full get up and you're you're yeah. there in the moment yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of immersion. I mean, there's still some of that suspension of of disbelief, but like I think too, you know, it it helps with kind of this context switching, right? Like, you know, there's this idea that okay, you want to go to the gym. Well, if you put on your gym clothes, you're like one step closer to actually going to the gym, ideally, right? And I think, you know, it you put on you put on this silly outfit, and you know, your brain acknowledges, okay, I guess I'm not at work anymore. <laughs> You know, I'm doing something totally different. You got any questions for this, Cecil? <laughs> no, I'm kind of just soaking up and learning what uh, what you folks are talking about. Uh, this sounds pretty pretty cool. To me. <laughs> you, you know, it's it's funny because I'm like, okay, and I'm I'm equating the the D and D equivalent to what LARP is doing. Uh, you know, kind of in in the back of my head, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it, I get that, yeah. I see that. It's D and D out in the woods, pretty much. <laughs> So um, I guess we should be wrapping up pretty yeah. soon. Um, do you do you, uh, have you seen any of the the new I guess newer um, newish type RPG shows that they're doing like on Twitch and things like that? Um, not too much. I've listened to like little bits and pieces on on podcasts, but I do find it really interesting that um, there's kind of this revival of RPGs because they're so presentable for like video or podcasts or something like that and so you've got this whole new wave of people finding an interest in in that because it just it sounds so engaging whenever you have like you know maybe not celebrities but very charismatic gregarious people uh playing and and being recorded so i i haven't watched too much i haven't had too much interest but i i think it's really cool what's going on in that so like like my I think I think you're absolutely right. So you know D and D released their new version a few years ago, and about the same time, uh, my favorite uh, RPG show, Critical Role, uh, hit hit the air as well, or hit the internet um, as well. And I think their their initial episode one has like over four million views in <laughs> YouTube. Right. They just started a new campaign after two and a half years. Two and a half years doing a weekly D and D show. I think they had 120 live, uh, you know, viewers in. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a unique show in the fact that there are a bunch of voice actors, and because oh, right. there are a bunch of because there are a bunch of voice actors playing Dungeons and Dragons, they add that element of their craft 
to right. their character. They're not kind of worried about stats and things like that. They're more worrying about the, the role-playing side of it. And so you get these really great moments of just two actors improving at, you know, in character. And it happens, frankly, almost every episode. And um, it, it, they have like 425 hours of freaking content. And it's just all out there on YouTube, just you know, waiting. And it's and it's pretty great. Um, and you know, there's there's rarely a dull moment that you would think in an RP game. You know that you know. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we do shopping here. They've done a good job about cutting a lot of that stuff off and doing that off camera, and kind of just focusing on the story and the characters. And it's it's pretty amazing. The other one that I've been watching um, or listening to, I should say, mm-hmm. is um, another one called Shield of Tomorrow. It's a Star Trek role-playing game or hmm. role-playing show. And they've been doing a really good job. I mean, I, I, I jokingly, but not jokingly, call it better than Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> right. And, you know, it was like the best Star Trek show last year. Um, they, they have actually, they actually wear some, some semblance of the uniform, but it's, a, it's taken during a time of like Voyager and they're in a uh, uh, a Voyager class starship. I guess what was the name of the starship? Intrepid class starship. Okay. And they've got sets and the whole thing, but it's really just all done in the mind and and of the characters. And you know they have reoccurring characters, NPCs, and things like that. But um, it's taken during the time of that whole Klingon war during okay uh, D Space Nine. And it's really interesting how you know they're they're trying to talk their way out and trying to do the Starfleet thing. Meanwhile, the Klingons are doing Klingon things and things like that. So it, it's it's a, you know, I, it's really interesting seeing all these role-playing shows just kind of pop up and it's like, where, where, where are we living now? I mean, this, this was 10 years ago, people would be laughed out of, you know, the room for even admitting they role-played and now millions yeah, of people are watching them on the internet. It's, it's very interesting. I, I feel so mixed about geek culture becoming mainstream culture because on the one hand, it's great that there's this broader audience and people are getting excited by this stuff. But then you get the side where like the consumerism or the commercialism tries to co-opt it. Do you know what I mean? So I, 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 it's exciting, but I definitely feel, feel mixed about it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. That's you know, something Cecil doesn't have to worry about, geek culture. He'll <laughs> never be confused for geek <laughs> Funny how that works out sometimes, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you when you so, when you so look we, as, as good as you do, Seth. Well, you know, I so my birthday was the other day. And um so I looked in the mirror and you know what? I'm starting to get like a lot of gray hair. Uh, join the club! Welcome! It's about time. What is what is 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 this what you feel like, Richie? Every like, morning, bro. <laughs> this is crazy. So I need to get um one of those just for men <laughs> brushes like when you brush it. Nice. What do you call it? Like brush away the know. gray or whatever. Like you brush it in the gray gray or something. <laughs> I just keep mine. That's it. I'm kidding. I'm so kidding, but, um, so go ahead and ask your question. Wait, Seth. G- yeah, Eugene. So we yeah, need absolutely. To start wrapping up a little bit. Uh, we've been on for a little bit over an hour. Um, so I do have to ask you what we'd like to call sure. the question of the show, and that is. When you're not working and when you're creating courses and doing some of these cool projects right. you're working on, what do you do when you're away from the keyboard? Yeah, I mean, we talked uh, a good bit about it, but um, just a couple different things. I, I I play board games pretty regularly, maybe not as much as when I was younger, but um, you know, my wife and I have kind of nine to ten is 
date hour. And so a lot of the time that's, re- that's filled with um, board games. Occasionally we'll practice sign language because I think it's just a fun thing for us to learn. We'll read like short stories of like sci-fi or fantasy or that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I do some of that LARPing. Um, and then uh, not involved with right now, but for the past four years, I was doing some youth leadership with uh, some high school boys at the, the church that I go to. Um, and that's been really fulfilling. Um, so those are some of the, the biggest things I do whenever I want to get away from the keyboard. So here's the other thing. Um, Cecil bought a switch like when, right when it came out. He bought two, sold one, yeah. and then put one in the closet. Can you please help me talk him into? Yes. Well, we haven't gotten that yet. The closet. So, <sighs> so it's in. It's okay. So first, Amazon has disappointed me greatly because I literally signed up for a Prime trial just to get two day shipping, um, but it has only shipped uh, like just yesterday. So we haven't gotten gotten ours yet, but I hear really great things about it. And if uh, Breath of the Wild is anything like Horizon Zero Dawn, you need to be playing that right now. Okay. So, Cecil, I, I did find on the Switch where yeah. it keeps track of the hours played, and I have no idea how this calculates. And I don't know if I've left mine on or not. Uh, but it says I've played Breath of the Wild uh, 205 hours. What? I find I, that I hard believe to it. believe. But... And that's between Christmas and No, uh, th- shortly before Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. Got it. So it's still, it's crazy amount that's, of hours, of, um, uh... even if it's remotely close. Um, but it, again, I've been playing like 10 p.m. to like midnight, you know, and a little bit on the, and some on the weekends pretty much every day, you know, just trying to find every shrine. And I said I wasn't going to do that. I said I was going to, Beat Ganon and be done with it. And yeah, done with it. And I'm not repentive over it at all. Is you know, I'm finding new things on the map. Like last night, I went to an area I, I had not been to. I'm like, how is this possible? How how My- can I, I? I've I've wandered all over this place. How can I be running into something I've never run into? It's amazing. My my brother's doing the completionist thing. That's kind of how I got convinced to buy the Switch because he was over a couple days ago and he's like, "You guys need to buy a Switch." I'm like, "Fine." Um, but he's doing completionist, so he's just to explore the whole world better. He's trying to find every Kokoro seed, and there's like 500 of them. I, I just call them Koroks because you know it's like, "What's up, Korok?" Um, <laughs> and then when I find them, like I pick them up and I find them on a rock, I like throw the rock on their head. It's like, "What hardcore!" Uh, but yeah, I've, I've said no to that. I found a third of them already, yeah. and I am like, I, I, I do not want to be wandering with the the, 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 the Korok mask on and it shaking every time when there's the one. Around. No, I, I'm I'm probably end up, going to end up finding all. That's what I'm probably end up doing. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I probably I don't know. So I'm I'm traveling next week. I'm thinking this weekend I might might go to GameStop or something and pick up a game and. Take it with me on the plane because I have a 10 hour flight from, I'm lying, I'm sorry. It's an 11 hour flight from Atlanta to Heathrow. So um, that's a lot of yeah, hours to be on the plane. Man. I don't know what I'm going to do. From Atlanta. Huh, interesting. Yeah. So it's two hours from here to Atlanta and then um, 11 from Atlanta to London. So yeah, so I got about. Um, I want to say a 13 and a half hour yeah, flight. Or I'd definitely go Breath of the Wild and um, maybe a, ba- a battery power pack because the, the Switch yeah. will last you about two and a half hours. 
if you're playing it straight. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Are, are they are they shipping you business class at least? <laughs> um, I think so. I believe so. I think all yeah. international travel, all you know, once you cross the Atlantic, like you just you know you just get yeah, and money. and we're we're the same except if it's anything is cross country, we get we get to go business slash first whatever they have. Um, I think the thing is for at least most of the team that's been traveling a lot more than I have. Like they get automatic yeah. upgrades yeah. anyway, because they just have that status. Yep. You know what I mean? So it's just like, yeah, whatever. 